I had, before we sang those songs, I had something else housekeeping-wise I needed to tell you. Oh, here's the other thing I want to tell you. Now, the notes that I gave you obviously have substantially more information than the notes in the last series we went through. And basically, those notes had like the main points and, and that was it. But I wanted you to be able to go away and have the, the main meat of what we're covering. I didn't want you to be trying to write down and write down and write down. Although there are also a lot more blanks, and we don't necessarily have all the blanks on the screens for you every single time. So uh, you're going to have to be listening, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to, to make a point to make sure that you wrote down that, that thing. So you're going to have to be engaged a little bit and follow along. That said, if you miss something, don't feel bad about asking a question. Even in the class as we go along, if there's a question that comes to your heart and mind, you say, boy, uh, I would like to know this. I want you guys to be able to engage and ask questions and say, you know, hey, what about this or what does that mean or how does this tie with that or whatever. And if I don't know it off the top of my head, I'll just say, hey, I'll, I'll look into it and I'll get back to you next week. So, uh, Ms. Trudy, would you mind being the secretary? <laughs> uh, would you write down, if somebody asks a question that I can't answer, Let's make a note of it so that I get it back and answer it next week. Uh, so as we go through this, if you have something or you say, oh, what does this mean or how does that tie in or whatever, or hey, I missed that letter or that uh, point or what was supposed to be there, don't feel bad about asking because it's going to be a lot easier to make sure we catch it as we go instead of trying to look back at the end of the lesson and say, oh, I missed letter A, whatever, because my notes are substantially longer than yours. Uh, I don't know. I think you have four pages of notes. I think I have about 14. Uh, and so uh, trying to go back and find that point for yours is going to be very different than what I have right here. So just letting you know as we move through that. All right. Uh, I want you to engage your brains. I want you to think about what are your personal goals for attending Sunday school and listening to this study on the Old Testament. What ultimately is that you want to achieve? Uh, you can say, well, I'm here, I'm at church, and this is Sunday school hour, so that is what it is. Well, if you were taking any other class anywhere, if you enrolled in the community college to study basket weaving, you would have a goal, your goal to try and learn and, and gain an understanding of that field or whatever. There would be an objective, and here's the thing, and listen, I believe that really we ought to be in church. Amen? Amen? We ought to be in God's house. But I think sometimes for us, especially like me, who've been in church my whole life and gone to Sunday school my whole life, and it's not really optional. It's not, I don't think about, well, am I going to go to Sunday school today? No, I go to Sunday school every single week. And you say, well, you teach. Amen? You don't have an option. Uh, but even when I wasn't teaching, that's the way it was. Uh, and, but what I'm saying is sometimes I think that we kind of like, we show up because we're supposed to. Hallelujah. We ought to do what we're supposed to do. Amen. That's good. We show up because we're supposed to, but then there's not really any incentive or motivation on our heart to say, man, I'm here because I want to gain. I'm here because I desire to learn. I'm here because we were like, well, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. And if I get something, okay. And if I don't, okay, it is what it is. 
Well, I think there ought to be a little bit more motivation in our heart and mind as to what we want to glean out of the Sunday School Hour. I hope that the Sunday School Hour, especially as we move into this study, is something that is engaging enough that you'll look forward to it and say, boy, I want to be there. I want to get that next book. I want to get understanding of where we're at or whatever. I hope and I ask God and you pray with me and ask God to make it that way uh, because we want it to be something that you are interested in and that is being a blessing to you, not something that we're fulfilling our duty and being in God's house because we're supposed to be. You know, I hope there's a little bit more to it than just that. I hope we're engaged spiritually and challenged and strengthened as we go through this study of the Old Testament. We're going to begin with the basics and then move on into something much deeper. This morning's study is really uh, foundational. This is kind of beginning. This has given us a broad overview as we move into a little bit more of the details. First of all, we're looking here this morning at the Bible, uh, the Word of God as a whole. We know the Bible. We're going to talk about this, but 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 21 says, For the prophecies came not in old time by the will of man. He's saying it's not written down just because man decided to. It's not just something man wanted to write. No, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is indeed the Word of God. This is the Bible. That word Bible comes from the word biblios, the, the uh, Greek word there, biblios, which means book. This book, we know the Bible, it's uh, 66 individual books uh, that are put together to make up the book, the book of the Bible. Each, each of these 66 books has their own message. It ties into the whole in a particular way, but it's one book with one unified purpose, the Bible. We want to, as we're going through this class, uh, we want to learn the books of the Bible. We're going to start easy, you know, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Let's say that together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let's do it once more. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right. So our goal would get to the place uh, where we can do Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I think I got them all. Did I get them, Bob? Got them. All right. Bob, I know Bob knows them. So we uh, several years ago we did this together and. Uh, I, even though I've been in this my whole life, it was during that Sunday school class several years ago that we worked on the books of the Bible that I really committed them to memory. And so many years, and I know many of you say, well, I used to be able to quote them. Well, let's get back to it. Let's be able, you know, so when the pastor says, turn to Isaiah, you're like, is that before Psalms or after Psalms? Uh, I don't know. Let me look, you know. And, uh, you know, it's really bad when he asks for one of the minor prophets and you're like, oh, no, where's that one at, you know. Um, and so having to memorize is good. Just knowledge about the Bible as a whole, just the basic things start starting to get those back into our heart and into our mind. The Bible, uh, more than any other book, this Bible has changed the course of human history. The Bible is a systematic revelation of his story. I was telling Christina and uh, Corwan yesterday, we met them 
uh, and uh, spent a little time talking to them yesterday, and I was telling them about my major in college was, was well, my minor was history, my major was speech. And, uh, you know, I studied history. But, you know, history really, from a biblical perspective, is his story. That's what history is. And the Word of God is a description, an explanation, a, a telling of the story of God and how God was working in the lives of men. And that's what we want to glean as we go through this. It must be taken and looked at as a whole to be able to understand and appreciate all of the individual elements. We have to have that broad overview. And so the book, the, the Bible by itself with the 66 books and all the information there, it, it can be a lot. It can be overwhelming. Um, you know, you get people that are, that are just coming to the church and it just seems like so much. And how in the world? And, and can I get an understanding of all this? And it, it just seems to be too much, too overwhelming. But you got to start somewhere. And that's where this Old Testament survey will help give us an overview. So here are some basic information for you. I put all this in your notes so you didn't have to try and write it down. These are readily available as well. But the Bible has 1,189 1, chapters, 31,373 verses. Um, there's 775,693 words. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalms 119. The shortest chapter is Psalms 117. Uh, the shortest verse, uh, John 11:35. I know many of you know that already, but Jesus wept. The longest verse in the Bible is Esther 8 in chapter 9. Uh, the longest book in the Old Testament is, Psalm, is Psalms, and the longest book in the New Testament is Luke. So just some information for you to have about the Bible. But the overriding theme of the Bible is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. That is the message from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, and Genesis chapter number three, uh, all the way to the book of Revelation, the overriding theme is Jesus Christ. Uh, Spurgeon speaking to his uh, college and uh, the boys that he was, you know, his preacher boys, he used to tell them, boys, when you get into the Bible, you find Jesus and preach Jesus. You have a text and you find Jesus in the text and preach Jesus. Regardless of where you're at, you find Jesus and preach Jesus because he is who, who's supposed to be lifted up. And uh, so Jesus is the overriding truth. This book is God's revelation of himself. Luke chapter 2 and I'm sorry, 24 and verse number 27. Now I have a lot to cover and we're trying to move quick. Uh, Thursday night, I was the same way. We introduced the book of Galatians. We're studying Galatians on Thursday night and I was flying. And after church, uh, somebody was kind enough to say, boy, tonight's lesson was really good. If you could slow down just a little bit, that would help. And I said, I know. I get, I, when I got all this information, I get very crank. I'm like wound up and ready. I got to go, you know. We got to get it all in. So I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to try and pace myself a little bit slower and not be too overwhelming, just nailing, nailing, nailing all of the information here. Uh, so in Luke 24, 27, he says, And beginning at Moses, that, of course, would be talking about the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's concerning himself. So Jesus was saying, hey, from the very beginning, Jesus began at Moses with, with the law all the way through the prophets. And, and he used that to explain things concerning himself. Jesus is the message, the overriding message of the Word of God. Jesus is a fulfillment of the revelation of God. In John chapter 14, verse number 9, he says, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? 
He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest then thou, show us the Father? He's saying, hey, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. This is the revelation of God. Jesus is the full revelation of God. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The overriding message of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. John 5, 39 says, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So the scriptures are what explain and expound and testify of Jesus Christ. And we are to be learning those scriptures. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. So God, the Father, manifested flesh in the flesh but by Jesus Christ, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Obviously a description of Jesus Christ when he came was believed on, preached, and then ultimately went back to glory. So Andrew Jukes in his book, The Law of Offerings, written in 1847, said this, Christ is throughout the key to scriptures. He is the one great idea of the Bible. Know Christ and understand God's thoughts about him and you will understand the Bible. In the word, we have a whole Christ presented to us. Christ in his office. Christ in his character. Christ in his person. Christ in his relations to God and man. The different books are but God's chapters in which he arranges and illustrates some one or more of these aspects of his beloved son. So I know that was pretty wordy, but basically saying, hey, the books of the Bible from the beginning to the end are simply a collection of the chapters of God's explanation of his son from the beginning to the end. And so we need to see Jesus Christ and see the working of what God was doing. So here's some other basic information for you about the Bible. We know these things, but it was constructed of 66 books. So the word of God, we know it's 66 different books and there's by 40 different authors. So 40 different authors, men that were moved of God to write the word of God. Listen, these men 40 different authors are all different ages. They come from all different walks of life. They are from different regions of the world. Uh, they come from different statuses. You have somebody as simple as a shepherd all the way to a king and everybody in between. All of these men, different aspects of life. So God used these men to pin the words of God. It was done over a 1600 year period. Over 1,600 years, uh, the, the scripture was written. Now, uh, well, we'll get into that. I don't want to chase any rabbits here. But it, was, uh, it contains two testaments. We know the old and the new. Now, testament means covenant. Testament means covenant. So you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament, which means covenant, the Old Covenant and the New Testament. The Old Covenant was made, of course, before Christ came, this was the covenant of the law. So we know that the law, there's a lot of, we're studying the book of Galatians, and there's a lot in the book of Galatians about the, the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of grace that we have in Jesus Christ. So this, uh, 
the Old Testament was believed to be the words of God even from the beginning, even from when they were first written, first penned. Uh, and the Jews believed them to be the scriptures. We see that all through the scriptures pointed to uh, this, this covenant, the covenant of the law was the covenant made with man. It was written primarily in Hebrew. So this Old Testament that we're studying was written primarily in Hebrew. The Old Testament prepares the way for the New Testament through several things. Uh, I think they're in your notes. Are they there? There's two I gave you there. So typology, yes. A covenant, uh, a promise, you know, that um, God, uh, we're going to get into this when we get into the book of Genesis and we begin to study uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham and uh, God's promises. And that is really the story of the Old Testament by and large is the story of Abraham and God's promise to him to establish a nation. And so you have that covenant that was there and you see God working and you see Satan trying to overturn what God is doing. And then God has to come back on the scene and address uh, something because men went their own way. We'll see that several times as we look at the broad overview. But a covenant is a promise. It's a, it's a matter of, uh, of a commitment. Uh, and so you have that Old Testament covenant with man. Uh, then you have the New Testament covenant, that promise, which is uh, of grace. So we see this Old Testament given to us uh, by the way of typology, an example of typology. It's all through the Old Testament, but one would be the, the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. If you remember that story, uh, they lifted up the serpent because they had been bitten by a serpent. And God says, okay, uh, it doesn't make sense. Why would... A serpent standing in the middle of the camp and people look at that and all of a sudden they're cured and healed. It's because God was teaching them, even all the way back in the Old Testament, that looking to him, faith in him is the way that man is healed. So that typology, that picture was drawn there and uh, all the way back in the Old Testament, teaching them that men need to look to God. And when they look to God in faith, believing they're healed. And so all through the Old Testament, there's typology that points to the New Testament that shows what God is doing. In John 3, 14 and 15, John 3, 14 and 15, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Talking about Jesus Christ. And so the same picture is drawn where Moses lifted up the serpent. He says, look to the serpent. And uh, not that the serpent has saved you, but by faith, believing what God said, and they were healed. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse number 15 says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the same message is given in the New Testament in, in a different way. But that typology all through the Old Testament is pointing to the new. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon was actually saved from that text. Uh, when he was out one day on his way to church and it was in the middle of a snowstorm, I did a paper in college on Spurgeon, which is why uh, I know this, but he uh, was on his way to church and it was a snowstorm and he couldn't get to his church. 
but he passed a, an old country church on the road and, and, and they, he heard them singing in there and he's like, well, there's people in this church. I'm going to go in here and worship the God. So he walked into that church and the pastor wasn't even there that day. The pastor couldn't get there because of the storm. So somebody in the church, just a layman in the church, got up and read this text and, and, and he preached, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. And uh, Spurgeon says it was, though, it was though there was nobody else in that auditorium that day. And that, that old uh, deacon or old man in that church was just pointing his finger right at me saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the one. He is the answer. And that's what drew uh, Spurgeon to Christ as I think he was about 15 years old. Um, so... We, we see this typology given to us, and then through prophecy, I don't have time to chase this down, but uh, it's not the kind of prophecy that people have today where they can be right and they can be wrong. It doesn't really matter, you know, there's still a prophet. Um, you know, there's the prophecy of the Old Testament uh, over and over and over again uh, was proven to be 100% accurate. Uh, every time that prophecy of, of foretold events, of coming situations, they went through those things and that prophecy was evident there of what was going to come. And as it definitely came to pass, it gave validity to the power and the truth and the inerrancy, big word for infallible, big word for correct, uh, for without mistake, uh, that, that proof was there. So... The New Testament or the New Covenant that we're looking at here is after Christ came. And uh, this was the covenant of grace. I mentioned uh, Galatians. Galatians deals with this very directly. And we're going to be studying Galatians clearly. But he says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. So Christ came and he redeemed us from the curse of the law because the law could not save. All the law could do is show that we transgressed. The law could only show people that they were a sinner. But Christ could save. He could forgive. Galatians 3, 19 through 25 says, Wherefore, then serveth the law. He says, Why are you serving the law? It was added because of transgression saying, we wrote the law so you would see their sin till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the covenant, the Old Testament covenant was given. The promise was made that the seed was going to come. That was Jesus Christ. So that testament, the Old Testament, the covenant, the law was given until the New Testament was going to come, until Christ came. And it was ordained by angels and he uh, in the hand of the mediator. Then he says in verse number 21, is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life. Okay, are you guys still awake? Still with me? If a law that was given could have given life. He says here, if it could have given life. I missed my spot. He says, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. He says, hey, if, if the law could have given you life, if the law could have made you righteous, then righteousness would have been distributed and given by the law. But it's not possible. He says in verse number 23 that, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up in faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Faith in what was to come. See, the Old Testament believers believe the same we do. Faith in Christ that was coming. And we look back to the Christ that has already came, but again, in faith, believing. 
Verse number 24 says, to bring us unto Christ that we may be justified by faith. And we'll dig into those verses very much more on Thursday night as we get into the book of Galatians. But uh, the New Testament was written primarily in, you guys know this? Greek. There's a few, few people. Yes, it was written primarily in Greek. So the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew, New Testament primarily in Greek. Um, the... New Testament church recognized the Old Testament as scripture. As the New Testament was formed, it was added to the Old Testament and became what we now today look at as the Bible. What others have said about the Bible, Augustine said this, the new is the old concealed and the old is the new revealed. So they give pictures of each other. Yes, Did uh, typology and prophecy. Yes, yeah, sorry. Jesus quoted from 22. Jesus quoted from 22 of the Old Testament books. Good, thank you. Yeah, I did skip that note. So I got lots of notes, so uh, I just didn't see it. Uh, yeah, I didn't see that. So Jesus, uh, again, showing the validity of the Old Testament. That's what we're establishing here. Jesus quoted from the Old Testament quite often, uh, referenced it, and taught from it. It revealed him. So, yeah, it's 22 Old Testament books. This covenant of grace written primarily in Greek. Now, the formation of the Old Testament. We know that it is 39 books of the Old Testament. They're divided into three groups. The Jews commonly divided them this way, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Of course, the law is the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch means five. That's where it comes from, the five books of the law. So that is the, the Pentateuch. Then the writings, the writings would include the poetry, the books of poetry, these were, they're called the writings because they were books that leaned to more personal, where the other books were national. Uh, they dealt with everything. Yes? Spell you need the spelling of Pentateuch. We don't have it on the screen for you guys. It's P-E-N-T-A-T-E-U-C-H. Pentateuch. Uh, and the writings are poetry. Uh, the writings include poetry and prose. Uh, not prose, sorry, that's the other scriptures. It's the personal experiences of people, uh, not historical or national, where the other writings deal with that. And then the prophets. Now, this is the Jewish uh, breakdown, but I have given you in your text uh, the common way in which we break them down today. Uh, and it should, you should have that all designed there for you. So you have the 17 historical books. And in those 17 historical books, you have the five books of the law, the 12 books of history. And then you have the personal writings, the five personal writings, the five books of, you know, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those five books of poetry. Uh, and then you have 17 prophetical books. These are your major and minor prophets, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. So those are uh, the common divisions of the Old Testament as they're broken down. And uh, we're going to be going through those in detail. Now, just because a book is in one specific category does not mean that it does not contain any of the other categories. For instance, some of the, there is a lot of history that we learn from the book of the law. The books of the law give us a lot of what God was doing during that time, but they are put into their own category, but there is some overlap in some of those areas as well. So it doesn't mean just because it's historical that it has nothing else or just prophetical that it has nothing else. They, they do overlap some. That's just how they're divided. So I wanted to give you some thoughts concerning canonicity. 
And I was being funny when I thought I was going to get through these notes today. Um, so we'll just take it one week at a time and go as uh, far as we can. So uh, the concern for canonicity, uh, how, you know, like, well, what is canonicity? What is, what is that? That's a big word. Uh, how did the early church know what was going to be scripture? How did they know what was not scripture? Is everything that Isaiah wrote just scripture? Uh, no. Is everything that Jeremiah wrote scripture? No. So how did they determine what was scripture? Well, that is where the word canonicity comes from, because a canon uh, refers, is a reference to a Hebrew word, which you can try and pronounce yourself, but I gave it to you there, uh, which means read. And the reed was a very straight plant that was very consistent in its growth pattern. The reed was established and could be a unit of measurement. And so the idea of canonicity became, here's the standard, here is the unit of measurement, like we would say one foot is one foot. Well, how do you know that? Well, because it's defined and it is clearly labeled on every tape measure that's out there. And a tape measure, I can go to Brother Taylor's house today and get a tape measure and we can measure one foot and it's going to be one foot. And we can go to my house and get a tape measure or Brother Reggie's house and get a tape measure or whatever. We can, and they're all going to be the same. That's the standard. Well, that's what canonicity is. It's the read, it's the measurement through which all of the writings of the Old Testament were gauged to determine if they were scripture or not. And a few of those things I have given you here. Um, I just want to say that the books, the word of God does not have authority because it was included in the canon. It was included in the canon because it has authority. Okay, we need to understand that. It's not, this is, this is right and it's the word of God because somebody decided so and put it into the book. No, it's God's word, which we don't have time to study all of the truths behind preservation and all that uh, right now and this morning. But God's word had authority, whether I say it has authority or not. Amen. Amen. I might say, well, it's just a book, but that doesn't change that it's God's word. So I, what I say doesn't give God's word authority. God's word has authority on its own. And that's what I'm saying. Just we need to look at this correctly. They looked at these books and these books which had authority, which were recognized by everybody as being truth and accurate and so on. They fit into the canon. So some of the units of measurement that they used to decide what was scripture is it had to be written before 400 B.C., this is one of the reasons why many of the Jewish people would not accept the Old Testament. Uh, I'm sorry, wouldn't accept the New Testament because it wasn't written before 400 B.C. And they say, well, it doesn't fit into the canon of the Old Testament, so it's not the Word of God. And they didn't want to embrace that truth that God gave. Um, it had to be written by a prophet. Uh, it had to be extant. That's a uh, fancy word, and I don't know why theologians like to use these big words, uh, but that simply means in existence, extant. Uh, why don't they just say it had to be in existence? That would be much easier, <laughs> but they use these theological words, uh, and that simply means it had to be in existence uh, before the canon was closed, so essentially 400 uh, B.C., had to be in existence before that or else uh, it could not be included in the canon. It was not recognized because the canon of scripture at that point for the Old Testament was closed. Um, and it had to be inspired. Um, had to be inspired. Um, how were they determined what was, in, what was inspired? I mean, 
I've read some good books. Say, boy, that's inspirational. Is that what they mean by inspired? No, that's not what they mean. It's not just that it was inspirational. It had to be God-breathed. It had to be, uh, we read it at the beginning, I think, uh, the passage in the New Testament that talks about that in 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So it had to be inspired. That means God breathed. That means God spoke it into existence. Um, there are many things that we accept in life that we do not understand. I heard somebody, and I'm going to have to end up closing with this here. I, I heard somebody this last week debating with somebody about the existence of God. And of course, everything in life points to the fact that there's a creator, right? Everything you see. And, uh, you know, he was talking to him and, and the guy's like, well, it's just a pie in the sky theory. It's just, it's just empty, vague hope that you hope there's a creator, that there's, you hope there's a God. And uh, so the debater says, well, uh, let me ask you, who made this? And he held up his cell phone. And the guy said, well, I don't know. And he, and he says, uh, well, did it just come into existence by itself? And he's like, no. He said, everything that's, that's made, you can see it's man-made. And, and the guy said, somebody designed it. And he's like, how do you know that? Do you know, do you know them personally? Did you see the design paperwork? Do you know that somebody designed this? And he's like, well, it has to, had to have been designed. And he's like, why? And he's well, it didn't just happen. It had, I mean, you look at it, and it's obvious it had to be designed by somebody. And he says, well, you just made my own argument. He says, you standing right here in front of me is evidence that there has to be a designer. There has to be somebody that uh, greater than us that looked at and designed and planned uh, man and the world and everything in this points to that. And we see that idea. There's many things what I'm saying is we don't understand, but we still take by faith. And so the inspiration of the scripture should not be any, di any different. Um, we, we believe it to be so. Uh, the, let's see. The books of the Old Testament were recognized as the word of God very early on, as witnessed by Joshua. Um, we know this passage of scripture. Let me read this, and we'll close for this morning. He says here, Joshua 1, 7 through 8, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So right away he's saying, hey, this is the books of the law. You need to follow this. You need to obey it. You need to listen to it. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. So you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What's next? Joshua. So already in the book of Joshua, He's saying, hey, the books of the law, they're the word of God. You need to listen to it, follow it. It'll bless and prosper your life. So as, as early as the book of Joshua, uh, there is the book, they're pointing to the Old Testament book of the law and saying, hey, this is God's word. We need to follow it. We need to listen to it and let it impact our lives. So we're going to continue uh, with next week the conviction of inspiration. That's the next point you have there. The conviction of inspiration. That is something that you need to have settled in your heart. You need to believe that God's word is God's word, that it's God-breathed. It's not just written down by man because that's what gives it authority, God's word. Not my word, not some man's word, but the word of God for us today. All right.
Let's close in prayer. 316 for me. I know it's written there in your, in your notes, just the, the uh, reference. But we want to read uh, that passage of Scripture. This is where we get the word inspiration from. And it means that God breathed, God inspired His word. When somebody has it, you can let me know. 2 Timothy 3.16 so that we can read that for everybody. Plus, it allows me to slow down. I, I, I hear myself cranking, and I'm like, I got to slow down. I got to slow down. <laughs> I, I just moving. Yes. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Amen. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Okay. It was inspired. God breathed. You have to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. This is not just a good book. This is not just some great writings that are good for mankind. There are lots of those out there. It is fundamental and necessary for your Christian faith that you believe without question that you're holding in your hand the Word of God. And that's what inspiration means, that God breathed. We want to talk about this. The Bible teaches its own inspiration. Okay, Over 400 times in the Old Testament, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord. Over 400 times, Thus saith the Lord. The Bible defines itself as the Word of God. Not just somebody saying, not just Moses wrote, or Isaiah wrote, uh, or Jeremiah wrote, whatever. No, Thus saith the Lord. So he is, whoever God used to pin the words, is communicating God's message. God inspired men. God inspired men that he specifically picked. He chose these men. He wanted these men. Uh, he, it's just not just random men. It's men that he specifically picked. It's men that he soundly prepared. These are men that he prepared specifically for the job and task in which they were going to be used and that he skillfully piloted. Skillfully piloted. Now the reason I've used that word there is because it's, it's notable, it's an amazing thing about the inspiration of God. In one hand, uh, you know, there's been times, and I'm not very good at it, so I don't do it much, but let's say back when Amy was here, I might say, hey, I need you to write a letter for me, can you come by the office, and I'm going to dictate to you a letter. And so she would come and she would sit down, and she could type pretty proficiently, and I could, I could tell her what I wanted her to say, and she would type my words, okay? That's not what happened in inspiration. The amazing thing about God and with regards to inspiration is God prepared these men specifically for their task, but then he used them individually who they were. It's God's words, but he still allowed these men to use their own education you look at Paul's writings, and a lot of his doctrine and theology was rooted in the fact that he was a Jew, that he sat under the feet of Gamaliel, that he had that higher level of education. But you look at Luke, a lot of Luke's writing, because he was a doctor, focuses on that physical aspect. And all through the scripture, you'll see people's individual personality come out, and yet it's still the words of God. And that's mind-boggling to me. As I thought about illustration or example of this, I thought, well, you know what I could do? I could give one of my kids a message, and I could say, hey, Andrew, go tell Caleb 
that I'm outside in the car waiting. And he may go downstairs and he may say, hey, dad's outside and he said, hurry up. You know, he, uh, I might give it to Alicia and Alicia would go downstairs and uh, say, dad said, you better get outside right now. Um, I could take it, and, and, so they're saying, what they're saying is, thus saith dad. They're not communicating their words, they're not communicating their message. They are carrying the message that I gave them to whom it was supposed to be delivered to, but their personality is still coming out. You know, Alicia's a little nicer, Andrew's, you know, you better get out there, or you're in trouble, you know, uh, and that may change a little bit. But, you know, I also, I was thinking, well, the Mills kids aren't in here, but I could, you know, give it to little Matthew. And who knows what message the, the kids downstairs would get. Um, but the th what I thought is he would not be saying, um, Dad said. He would say, Pastor said. Right? I mean, he probably would say, hey, Pastor said. Uh, you know, and so, but they're carrying the message. And that's what inspiration is, is that God used these men that he specifically chose that he soundly prepared, gave them exactly what they needed to be able to do this, and then he piloted it. He, he used them and who they were and their personality and their character and their training and all of this, but then he gave them the words that he wanted to be communicated. And exactly how that happens, you know what? I don't have all the answers. I can't explain every detail as to how that is, but we believe it, right, by faith. That's what it is. If it's not inspired, what good is it? If it's just a good book, it's like any other book, then, then we, don't, we can't have the confidence in it. We can't believe it. We can't uh, take it to the bank and trust it like a Christian should. Uh, the Bible has withstood every attack through time. We're talking about the validation of the fact that it was inspired, that this book is inspired. And so not only does the Bible teach its own inspiration, but the fact that the Bible has withstood the test of time. Now, you guys have heard about Voltaire and his great uh, uh, campaign against Christians. Voltaire said, The Bible, that is what fools have written, what imbeciles have commended, what rogues have taught, and what young children are made to learn by heart. He wrote that in 1764 in Voltaire's Philosophical Dictionary. Um, now, Voltaire's goal was to wipe out Christianity. He actually wrote to, uh, uh, I think it was Henry the Great, but a king in Persia, he wrote him a letter and said, my only regret in dying is that I have no more life to give for the eradication of Christianity. He wanted to do away with Christianity. And uh, you guys know Voltaire said that within a hundred years, and his, his idea was thinking that men would somehow come to the place where they were smart enough to realize nobody would believe in the foolishness of the Bible anymore. He said within a hundred years, there would not be a copy of the Word of God on earth anywhere. <laughs> but the amazing thing is that Within a few years of his death, his home that he lived in was bought by uh, the Evangelical Bible Society, and the printing press that he used to spread his hatred of Christianity and against God was used to print Bibles. 
That is uh, God in His providence working. The Bible has withstood the attack all through history. You've had kings, you've had nations, you've had people say, we're going to take the Bible and wipe it off the face of the earth. We're going to get rid of it. It's no longer going to be read anywhere. But what's amazing is all through history, from the book of Acts on, the church and the Word of God has flourished and spread under persecution. The more it's persecuted, the more it the Bible has spread, and it's amazing uh, through history when you see that, the Word of God proliferating and expanding and growing even amidst the most severe persecution. Many people at the threat of death would carry a copy of the Word of God to distribute it to somebody else. And that is uh, the evidence of its miraculous power and miraculous nature. Not only that, we see that it has withstood the test of time in every attack with regards to archaeology. Archaeology in the Bible has been accurate on every uh, thing that has been revealed. Write down next to archaeology, write down Exodus 5, and write down straw, if you would, at least that. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 5, the Israelites are recorded to making bricks without straw. The, uh, you know, scholars, all these people with really big brains said that's impossible. You can't make a brick without straw. It's not going to hold up. Well, archaeologists have uncovered in Israel multiple locations in which the Israelites had built walls and the foundational bricks were made with very hardy straw. The intermediate bricks were made with just basically very weak stubble, just very marginal levels of straw and the top tier bricks of the homes and walls that were constructed had no straw on them at all. They argued, they said, oh, look at that. That couldn't have happened. You can't build a, a house or a brick without straw. And yet they found bricks that were still holding together thousands of years later that they were able to uncover that had no straw in them. Archaeology over and over again has revealed uh, this to be the case. Um, then, let's see. I want to see. The city in which that's found, if you want to find it, is uh, mentioned in Exodus 1.11, and it's P-I-T-H-O-M. Uh, is, I don't know if it's Python or Pithom. Uh, I don't know how you would say it, but uh, that's the pronunciation of it, that archaeology. And there's many other proofs, but that's what I want to give you. With regards to science, over and over again, the Word of God has been proven uh, with regards to science. Write down next to science, Leviticus 17.11. Uh, and uh, there's other passages, but this is where it mentions the fact that, that there's the life of man is in the blood. And if down in history, if they would have just read the Word of God, they wouldn't have been bleeding people that were sick. They, they're literally sucking the life out of them, hoping they'll get better. Uh, but the Bible is very clear. And in every scientific discovery place where man thought, oh, look, see, the Bible's wrong, then given a little bit of time, and ultimately the knowledge and science will catch up, and the Word of God will be proven to be correct. Then regards to prophecy, again, the standing, the Word of God standing through time, prophecy. Uh, every prophecy, there's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Word of God. Uh, we could take multiple lessons and just look at the prophecies that have been fulfilled uh, without question, uh, without error, 
they came to pass uh, every single time. Uh, for instance, the prophecy mentioned in uh, Nahum chapter 3, verse number 15, if you want to write that down. This is where it mentions that uh, the city of Nineveh was going to be burned by fire. And uh, they uncovered, it was actually long, long time ago, but they have uncovered uh, the city of Nineveh. And it was completely, when they dug down to it, there was a, an entire layer of ash that they had to dig through to get to the city. The entire city, from edge to edge, had this layer of ash. And uh, I've, I've been there. I've been in the place. There are still pillars that are there that you can go to and see are completely charred. They're still black. Like you can rub your hands on them and get your hand black from that place where they have uncovered the fact that this uh, was in... So, it was prophesied many, many years before it happened, and then it happened, and now it has been uncovered and proven to be so. So prophecy, hundreds and hundreds of prophetic things that the Word of God has proven to be sure, sure. But ultimately, what it boils down to is we must accept it as a matter of faith, this Word of God. We've got to believe it. We've got to know it is the Word of God. Um, we can't necessarily understand it all. We can't explain it all. But the fact of the matter is we don't have to, Right? We don't have to. Uh, we have the word of God and we must accept it by faith. Um, we have faith for salvation. You're going to have faith and trust that Jesus Christ saved you. You're going to believe that the word of God regarding salvation is true and that Jesus forgave you and saved your soul. Then we have to believe the word of God. Don't let people tell you that the word of God is full of errors. That's more and more popular. Even pastors in churches will stand up and say, oh yes, we believe in God and, and this is the word of God, but uh, the Bible has errors in it. We just have to determine what's error and what's not. Well, who decides what's error and what's not? If we serve an omnipotent, all-powerful God, why would he provide for us a Bible with errors in it? That we would have to try and to decipher, oh, well, no, we have an inerrant, infallible word of God, Okay. And we believe it and trust it by faith. All other doctrines in the word of God are accepted by faith. We know that without faith it's impossible to please him. Beloved, if we took away all the claims of its own power and authenticity, if we took away all the claims that the Bible has of itself, and we removed every scholar down through all the pages of time that have stood and said, without question, this is an infallible book, you and I should still believe it to be the words of God. Why? Because we have a Holy Spirit inside of us that confirms it to be so. And we have the transformation that God has wrought in our lives through the power of it. I stood on the Sea of Galilee and preached to a group of men. And the message I couldn't help but preach is we have a more sure word. I said, I'm standing here on the Sea of Galilee, a place where Jesus walked, but I want you to know that I believe Jesus walked here not because I'm here, not because I get to see it, not because I can see where the disciples walked, but because the Bible said it to be so. And I've enjoyed walking through the, the, uh, Israel and seeing all of these Bible things, but I believe what happened in the Bible, not because archaeologists have uncovered it and said, oh, look at this, but because the Bible says it so. Because it is the very words of God. 
So not only does canon give it its authority, and we know that it is the Word of God, not only do we believe it by conviction concerning inspiration, but we see for you and I the connection to the New Testament Christian, the connection to us, this book that's connected to us, that the Holy Spirit confirms in our heart to be the words of God and the change that it brings. We accept it by faith. The whole of Bible is inspired. We, that would include the Old Testament and the New. There's a lot of people that want to say today, oh, the New Testament is for the New Testament Christian. Don't worry about the Old Testament. I want you to know the Old Testament, there's many things that are still applicable and we can still learn for all Scripture, we read. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So we can't say, oh, well, just the New Testament's for us. No, all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. The Old Testament has just as much authority in our life as the New Testament did. The Old Testament exists, number two here, the Old Testament exists to lay a foundation for and provide an introduction to the New Testament. And I get, I'm getting running again. Any questions, any, any concerns we got? I, I, I just keep plugging away and uh, uh, just want to make sure... Uh, that, we're, that we're getting it, that I'm not moving too fast and uh, we're, we're all together, okay? The Old Testament exists to lay a foundation for and provide an introduction to the New Testament. B.B. Warfield, who died in 1921, said this, The Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished but dimly lit. The introduction of light brings into it nothing that was not previously there, but brings it out into a much clearer view. Much of what it is or was, but was only dimly lit and only partially perceived. So what he's saying is the introduction of the light that we get in the New Testament what that does is it turns the lights on for us. There are a lot of things maybe in the Old Testament that we didn't quite understand or didn't make sense, but they're still there. The Bible sometimes calls these mysteries. And in the New Testament, some of the mysteries of the Word of God were brought to light. They were exposed. They were revealed. They were there, but they were dimly lit. Could barely see them. But now the New Testament shines light on that Old Testament truth and gives us a much better understanding of it. So we know that Jesus is the center of the Bible. Old Testament looks forward to him. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus. The New Testament looks at him high and lifted up. The New Testament sees Jesus for who he was. Obviously, he is crucified, lifted up on a cross, died, buried, but ascended unto the right hand of the Father. But the New Testament church, the church introduced to him at the cross, but looks forward to his coming. That's our focus. So Old Testament looked forward to Jesus Christ. The New Testament saw Jesus Christ for who he was, high and lifted up. We look back to Jesus Christ at the cross, but at the same time look forward to his coming again. Jesus uh, connected the Old Testament and the New Testament on many different occasions. Like I said, he quoted from the Old Testament 22 times. Um, such as is given to us in Luke 24, 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. 
He said, hey, these things all got to be filled. Everything that Moses said and the prophets said and the Psalms said about me. This is what's coming to pass now. So he's connecting the two and showing the validity of the Old Testament along with the New Testament. Paul often used both the Old Testament to uh, show and teach people about God. Uh, in Acts 28:23, he said, And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus... So he's talking to them about Jesus. He's persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. So Paul used the Old Testament to persuade these people about Jesus. Again, showing the validity of the Old Testament. Changing times and changing cultures do not affect an unchanging God. Therefore, this word of God is still applicable and is for us today. Beloved, our goal in taking this class, our goal in diving into these scriptures is not simply that we would have a greater understanding of scripture. If that is our, the entirety of our goal is that we would understand scripture better, we fall woefully short of what our ambition should be. John 17 verse number 3 says, And this is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God. So our goal in studying these scriptures, yes, to gain an understanding of the scripture, but ultimately to know him, to know him better, to know what his will is for our life, to be able to understand and see what God was doing down through the pages of time and how it applies to our lives today. I did not think I was going to get into the introduction. So what we're going to be de begin doing next week is we're starting right here, this creation. We're going to begin looking at the formation. Uh, but I have a whole lesson just introducing. We're laying the foundation. So it's going to get, it's going to maybe, I mean, some of these books down here we're going to cover in one week. We're going to be spending about six weeks right here. Uh, laying the foundation. Uh, so we're going to be starting there last week. Next week, you have already the notes for uh, the introduction to Genesis, and then the following week, we'll be getting into the formation. Yes? Yes, very, very powerful. That's great. It helps expose it. And I know at the beginning, we're getting here, and I'm giving you a lot. <laughs> and some of it might be overwhelming. You think, man, there's so much... Well, like the example I gave you, you know, just sometimes you get dropped into a city and you're like, what in the world? How, how can I find my way around? Well, there's some, some guideposts that we can get. There's some signs and some things that we can learn that will build a framework for us. And that's what we want to do as we're going through this. So don't hesitate to ask questions. If you want to know about something, uh, I would encourage you to read the first couple chapters of Genesis this week. Now, many of you already read it a couple weeks ago as we're beginning the year. Uh, but just to refresh your mind and memory about those things, we're going to begin getting into that next week. All right, let me close in prayer.